As we come to this final Sunday of 2007, we've also ironically arrived at our final chapter in the study of the book of James that we've been taking a few months over. And it also very appropriately deals with the subject of prayer, which is where we are headed as we move into the new year through both Ignite and through our solemn assembly. The full passage, you can work your way through in the study guides, pick them up. I want to focus on these four verses for today. Will you just read them together with me, please? Is any one of you in trouble? Three groups of people in the church at prayer that James talks about. Individuals at prayer, the elders praying, and a whole congregation praying for one another. So let's kind of work our way through each one of them. begins by saying, is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Now, the word for trouble here is a fairly broad, comprehensive term and embraces all kinds of difficulties in life. The immediate context which talks about prophets under persecution and, and Job in particular would suggest therefore that included in here is the persecution that comes from our faith, uh, economic oppression which we talked about a couple of weeks ago that characterized some of the Christians in the early church. It includes uh, family tragedies and personal hardships like Job faced. In other words, what is the common lot of human existence? And James says if you're in trouble, pray. Now, he doesn't tell us what to pray for. Uh, our most instinctive way of praying in time of trouble is for the trouble to end. And that's per- perfectly understandable. But I think the context would suggest that we perhaps need to broaden our understanding a little bit. Precisely because James has talked about the long history of suffering in the Bible and of difficulties and challenges. Uh, we are not only to pray for the end to trouble, but it's also appropriate to pray for the grace to persevere in the right spirit, and a right spirit that comes from the kind of grasp of biblical history and God's ways of dealing with his people. I know the, time, the one time when it was driven home to me most dramatically was my very first encounter with persecuted Christians. Uh, some of you were not here in the early 90s, but in the early 90s I did quite a bit of leadership training work overseas along with my brother-in-law Ravi's organization. And I still remember the first time I met pastors from Iran when we went to England to do a leadership training conference. And uh, that was the first time in over a 10-day period over lunch and dinner was able to hear actual personal first-hand experiences of persecution. And as we all said our goodbyes on the way back and they sent greetings to the church and they asked us to pray. And you know when I asked them what can we pray for, not one time did I ever hear the request, please pray for the persecution to end. Never. What I heard was, please pray for wisdom and please pray for perseverance. Wisdom and perseverance. Now, it's one thing for me to say that. It's another thing for the people who are actually going through it to say that. Now, that's at the dramatic end of the spectrum. I think the principle holds even for some of the troubles that are far less uh, in your face and hardships like persecution. You know, I'm at the stage in my life now where I'm actually learning a lot from my own children. And a few weeks ago, Vijay and I were chatting on the phone and... uh, They've had a little bit of a run for their money with Joel, our second grandson. 
He's a healthy, healthy young lad, but he doesn't sleep very well at night. And seems to need very little sleep. And sometimes he'll wake three or four times and stay up for an hour or and a half. And so they were going through fairly serious sleep deprivation. And, you know, Vijay said, you know, Dad, one of the things God's been teaching us, we, we prayed for relief. Appropriate and natural. So did we. Maybe we prayed more than they did. I don't know. But he said, God has gently been teaching us to also start praying for strength to endure. And he said, it's been amazing how he has been answering that prayer for us. We're actually finding ourselves much stronger than before. So just a good reminder once again, that wherever we may be on this spectrum of what is called trouble, the common lot of human existence, let's pray, appropriate to pray for relief, but let's not forget to pray for strength to persevere and wisdom that comes from a kind of biblical grasp of what the scriptures say about such things. Anyway, that's, uh, he moves from there to, to what, is, what is the heart of this section, <coughs> which is elders at prayer. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Now we practice this thing a lot. All of you know that elders pray for people in this church. But this is actually the first time I've ever actually studied and preached on this passage. And I learned a lot of things. And maybe some of you might learn some things as well. So let me work your way through this. First of all, he says if any one of you is sick, he should call the elders. The implication is that person can't go to the elders. In other words, they are sick enough that they can't go anywhere, that they have to summon the elders to come. Secondly, this phrase, praying over. I, I learned from my research that that's an unusual combination of those two words, praying and over, appears only in this place in the entire New Testament. And so when, when something like that happens, it's worthwhile paying attention to it. I, I think it has two, prob- probably two dimensions to it that are important. First of all, the praying over would imply that this person is not only so sick that they can't travel to the elders, but they're probably sick on a sick bed. And so physically the elders are over this person. But I also think it is a powerful metaphor for the laying on of hands. Because as elders lay hands on this particular person, they're also over that person in that sense. So it has perhaps both a physical as well as symbolic uh, reference of, of praying over. And then the oil. There's a long history of interpretation on the importance of the oil. But uh, based on my understanding of the chapter as a whole, and we will work our way through this, you'll see why I, th- I think one is probably more obvious than the others. First of all, I don't think it has, it's any medicinal, uh, although oil was used for medicinal purposes. And nor is it sacramental in the sense that the oil has some magical powers of its own. What makes sense in the passage in this context is that it's primarily consecrational. In the, new, in the scriptures, whenever people were set apart for a special purpose, they were anointed with oil. And so when this ordinary person is anointed with oil, in that rich biblical tradition, it's very appropriate to see that as the community of faith saying to this person, you are the object of special attention from God right now through the elders. It is a word from a covenant faithful God to one of his children in trouble saying to them, you are mine. And right now you are the object of my attention. And so the oil I think serves that consecrational purpose here. And then as for the word pray, ask for the church to pray over him. It's not the same word earlier where individuals were told to pray, which is a very common word for prayer. This particular word for prayer occurs only twice. 
and from a look and, and looking at all the cognate words, its primary meaning is one of fervency or enthusiasm in prayer. And that struck me as important. You know why? Because in, the, in this issue of elders gathering together to pray for somebody who wants to be prayed over, this can't be some kind of half-hearted, oh, it's my duty kind of approach to prayer. It, it's got to be, have some degree of fervency and enthusiasm behind it. Healing is a mystery and we will talk about it in a minute. But that mystery cannot be allowed to therefore make our praying in such situations so diffident, so qualified by a thousand if it be thy wills, that all oomph, as it were, has gone from the prayer. Uh, so I think it's, it's significant that uh, uncommon words are used for common activities, which should alert us to some emphasis in the text. And then it says it needs to be in the name of the Lord. Which implies many things. It implies that the elders have been sent and authorized by God. It implies above all that the power of the Lord Jesus Christ is behind this activity of praying. Then the result that is mentioned is that the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise him up. The sickness put him on the bed or her and the Lord raises that person up. And then he adds what at first seems out of context. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Now it's a bit problematic because as the book of James, uh, Job tells us, it is not wise to assume that behind every sickness there's a bunch of secret sins. This is exactly the problem with Job's three comforters and they were soundly rebuked by God for that. On the other hand, the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church said to them, because of their misbehavior during communion, their Lord's Supper, especially the neglect of the poor in their community, he said, some of you are not only sick, some of you have actually died because of this sin. So better examine yourselves before you eat the Lord's Supper. So, both of those things are important. We can't rush to an assumption that behind sickness is sin, nor can we ignore that possibility completely. And so in the context of elders praying for people who are sick, I think what it suggests is a couple of things. First of all, it suggests that in that, there needs to be an opportunity given to the person to say, brother, sister, before we go ahead and pray for you, we just want to ask you this question. Is there anything in your life that is not right that you know of, that you haven't dealt with? If so, it might be wise for you to do that right now. And the purpose of that would not be to condemn the person, but to then lead them in that prayer of confession, and as elders to be able to affirm that they've in fact been forgiven by God. The, the, the second dimension, of course, I think is also perhaps an encouragement to the individual that once healed, they should do what Romans tells us we should do, offer the members of our healed body as instruments of righteousness for God's service. So that's, that's if you will, uh, what's involved in here. Now there's one question that immediately comes to most of our minds. But this doesn't happen. Not the praying part. The healing doesn't seem to happen all the time. In fact, the healing doesn't seem to happen a majority of the time. And I am going to be talking about that. I'm not going to avoid the subject. I will come back to that issue. But I don't want us to miss the primary flow of the teaching and get bogged down on a sidetrack, even though it's important. And that's seen immediately in the next verse, because the next verse he now talks about the whole congregation at prayer. He says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now this is not a separate injunction. Notice the word therefore. In other words, 
what he has just finished saying about elders praying for people who are sick and how they should be praying and all that stuff. He said that stuff is directly related to the second statement. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Well, what's he saying here? I think what James is saying is the congregation's responsibility rather than get sidetracked with all kinds of unanswered questions which may be important they should be focusing on providing the right kind of spiritual health and environment in which healing can take place. In other words, the elders have a responsibility to respond. The congregation has a responsibility to provide a certain kind of health and atmosphere. I mean, we have a very loose analogy to this in the physical body. The stronger and healthier a person is, the more quickly individual sicknesses they can get over. You know. The overall weaker a person is, the more difficult it is for them to heal of any particular things. And so the congregational health is important. He has moved from individuals confessing their sins and receiving forgiveness to a congregation confessing sins to one another. Now, the scholars also tell me that the tense of the verbs here is present imperative, which means this should be a continual or a regular feature of community. Well, I think exactly the opposite is true, right? Because most of us in the Christian community don't confess our sins to one another. I was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German uh, theologian and saint, who first confronted me with this question when he said, he said, why is it that we find it so much easier to confess our sins to a holy God and find it so difficult to confess our sins to a sinner just like us? When exactly the opposite should be true. We should be trembling before a holy God and we should have no trouble acknowledging to somebody who's just like us, hey, I'm flawed like you are. But it doesn't happen that way. And he traced, he didn't give the answers to the why, but he traced one important possible consequence. He said, maybe, maybe what we are mistaking as real acts of confession from, to God and forgiveness from God are nothing but acts of self-forgiveness and self-confession. And therefore we arise from these encounters with no real power over our sins at all. Be that as it may, James is saying, it is very important in congregational health to learn to confess our sins one to another. Not for the purpose of being judged, but so that we might pray for one another. And listen, because of all this talk about elders praying, don't disqualify yourself. Because here is everybody. Anybody can pray for anybody else. I want to read for you a story that I came across while I was doing my research for this message. It was actually told by a lady in the church about another woman in her church. Her name was Sarah, and she said she just started attending our church. She had never prayed aloud in her whole life before. Sarah was on call for her job as an ultrasound technician for a local emergency room. One Friday night, she was called into work at 2 a.m. The doctor told her he thought the lady in examination room 2 was crazy, but that for legal reasons they had to run some tests. Sarah entered the room to find a highly agitated woman in her 40s who could barely sit still for the ultrasound. The woman was bouncing off the walls and complaining of intense discomfort. At one point, she even lay down on the floor. Struggling to conduct the requisite test, Sarah was trying to get out of there, when out of the blue, the woman said, Do you believe in Jesus? Well, Sarah responded hesitantly, I do. With hope in her eyes for the first time, the woman pleaded, Will you please pray for me? I just need to calm down. Sarah was dismayed. These things never happened to her before she started following Jesus. Trying to avoid the inevitable, she mustered up enough strength to say, Why don't you pray or get us started? No, it hurts me too much. You do it, the woman begged. With no recourse, right there in the ER, Sarah stretched out her hand and laid it on the woman and she prayed. And remember, this is the first time this woman has ever prayed aloud. 
God, please be with this woman in her time of need. Please give the doctors wisdom to know what is wrong with her and how to fix it. And God, please put your hand on her and take away her pain. The woman calmed down. And as she did, Sarah had a sudden inclination to recheck her gallbladder. There wedged in the neck of the woman's gallbladder was a four millimeter stone. Sarah immediately told the doctor who overcame his disbelief quickly enough to order emergency surgery. How's that for a first time praying? Ah, what does that do to our excuses for not praying for one another? Nobody. You're a follower of Christ. You can pray. And you should pray. We should be confessing our sins to one another. Now, James does not mean to turn worship services into a public breast-beating service with all kinds of inappropriate disclosure of information. That's not his point. What he's saying is, it does need to happen somewhere. Maybe one-on-one with your mentor. Maybe in a small group that's safe enough. Maybe in a group that's gathered together to study a particular subject. And yes, during solemn assemblies, we do have opportunities in an appropriate level of detail. And we have had people stand up and publicly confess. There's a freedom to be able to say, Boy, I am so angry with what happened at work. That guy got the promotion that I deserve and I just burn with jealousy every Monday when I go there. Can we say that if we feel it? What if the the consequence of being able to do that is to have some brother or sister say, let me pray for you. And then have all that be taken away from you. Is that worth it? Or is it worth preserving this little image that we are perfect and not share? At any rate, James is saying this kind of openness is crucial not only for your own healing, but then to provide the kind of health in a congregational sense that then allows elders and others when they pray over challenging situations, people who can't even go anywhere, to have that effect. So it's just worthwhile thinking about that. So it could be, it could be that part of the reason, sometimes, why the prayer of elders is not powerful, it could be because we are not paying attention to this therefore. That is certainly part of the reason. Which then brings me now to the issue. Let me tackle this issue head on. Uh, this promise and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise them up. It's a categorical promise. There are no ifs and buts to it. So what do we do? What do we do with this issue? With this fact that when elders pray, you don't always see healing. Let me give you three options, two of which I don't, uh, th- all three of them in my view don't really do justice to the issue. The first one is to relegate this whole promise to the apostolic age. This all was true for the apostles. It doesn't apply to us today. So we shouldn't even be doing this. Uh, unfortunately, there's nothing in the, bio, in the text of James that would suggest that that's the right approach. The second one isn't much better. Uh, it says, well, of course, he always answers. Either he heals now or he heals us later on when we are dead and we are raised. Yeah, that's true, but we don't need elders to pray for us for that. In fact, we don't even need prayers. Every one of us is automatically going to get there one day. Besides, there's absolutely nothing in the text which would suggest that James is talking about future death and resurrection. He's talking about something that's going to happen here. An approach that comes a little bit closer to having some merit to it is the third one. It says, well, this is a prayer offered in faith. So maybe, there's not enough, maybe the elders didn't have enough faith. And didn't James say in chapter 1 that if anybody asks doubting, double-minded, they won't receive anything from God? So it's true. It is true that faith is an important factor, that this thing can't be done perfunctorily. And it is true that it is possible to be doubting and double-minded when we do this. But 
If you just simply automatically say, well, the elders' faith is at fault every time, you're going to run very quickly out of elders who are going to pray for anybody. Quite understandably. So some people have said, well, it's not their problem. It's the lack of faith of the person that's being prayed for. There's two problems with that. First of all, that is not even mentioned here at all. But even more to the point, that person now lives with two condemnations. They will live with the condemnation of the sickness that has not been healed. And they will then live with the condemnation that their lack of faith is the problem. So these answers, as far as I'm concerned, don't work at all. So you say, what's the answer? You know what? I don't know. I absolutely don't know the answer to it. uh, Because I think we are called to live the question. So much of the Christian life I'm discovering is not finding out answers, but learning to live in the face of mystery and live the questions. And there are three things I think that help uh, me at least uh, to formulate uh, living the question in this case. Number one, learn to have faith in all of God's attributes, not just in his power to heal. There are three in particular that pertain to the issue of healing. God's goodness or compassion, his wisdom and his sovereignty. The New Testament tells us, that the Gospels, that Jesus healed because he was compassionate. He felt deeply for lepers, for mothers who had lost their only children. Jesus healed because he was compassionate. So God heals because he's good. But healing also involves divine wisdom. And James chapter 1 opened by saying that sometimes he doesn't. Because he wants to teach us perseverance. Because perseverance is foundational to building every other character quality there is. So when does God want, when is it best for us to be healed? When it is best for us to learn perseverance? We don't know, he does. So we have to trust his wisdom. And then thirdly, there are some things that God does that he simply gives no answer to anybody for. In fact, I think it's in Job, but elsewhere he says, I will give account to no man for my actions. And so God's goodness, God's wisdom and God's sovereignty are three attributes that intersect in every situation. And you and I just don't know what the intersection looks like in every particular case. But we have to believe in all of them, not just his power to heal. Secondly, and this is absolutely crucial, never let what is fuzzy be an excuse for not obeying what is clear. What is fuzzy here is why God doesn't heal sometimes. What is not fuzzy is what the elders and the sick people are required to do. The seriously sick are to call the elders. They are told to summon the elders. Is that difficult to understand? No mystery there. And what are the elders told to do? To anoint and pray. Any mystery there? No. Those two things are very clear. So it doesn't matter whether we know the answer to the question. We must obey what is clear. While we hold in abeyance what is not very clear. Uh, and listen, those of us who are sick and who need it, why would you want to miss out on what might happen? I came across another story that is very pertinent to what I've gone through this week because it'll be another one of those typical Christmas weeks where I struggle with laryngitis, not knowing whether I will have enough strength to be able to speak. And every time God does His work, I've never once been healed. Every time He's given me the strength to go through the whole process. This, this is a story <coughs> that's told by J.P. Moreland, who's a, a Christian apologist and professor. He said, the Sunday evening service on February 20th, 2005 had just ended and I wanted to get home. The previous Thursday, a virus landed in my chest and throat. And in a period of less than three hours, I went from being normal to having the worst case of laryngitis in the 35 years since college. On Friday, I went to a walk-in clinic and was told I just had to wait 10 days. I was frustrated. My main day of teaching at the university was Monday. I had already missed my limit of canceled classes for the semester. On Sunday evening, I whispered a few greetings to various church friends. I tried to speak normally, but it hurt too much. After the service, I had to get home, 
tried to contact our department secretary that night and cancel my classes for Monday. As I was walking out of the sanctuary, two elders from my church intercepted me. Hey, JP1L, you can't leave yet. My wife just told me you have laryngitis, and we can't let you go home without loving you a bit and praying for your throat. So one elder laid hands on my shoulders, and the other placed his hand on my lower throat area and started praying. To be honest, I wasn't listening to a word they said. Talk about lack of faith. (laughs) To be honest, I wasn't even listening to a word they said. I had already left the church emotionally, and I wanted to leave the church physically to go home and make my phone call. But something happened. As the two men prayed gently for me, I began to feel heat pour into my throat and chest from one elder's hands. After two or three minutes of prayer, I was completely and irreversibly healed. I started talking to the brothers normally with no pain, no effort, no trace that anything had been wrong. I never had to make that call to my secretary. The laryngitis never returned. If that's possible... Why would you want to miss out? I had them pray for me last night. They prayed for me after the first service, after the, before the first service, and they prayed for me before the second service as, as well. So let's not suspend what is clearly taught because of some things that are not clear for us. I want to draw this sermon to a close by picking up one element of that story that I just read. I love the way those two elders approached the man and said, Hey JP, we can't let you go home without loving you a bit. You know, I've been familiar with this issue of anointing and praying for 35 years. I've been a pastor for 28 years. I was an elder for five years before that in this church. But I never understood, I never saw the importance of this practice in the context of where it appears in James. We've been learning from chapter 3 on in James about the problems with the tongue. And a community that can be marked by bitter envy and selfish ambition leading to fights and quarrels and grumblings and complaints and slander and all those things. All the way from the beginning of chapter 3 right up to chapter 5 verse 6. He's been warning them about these dangers. And in a community that is marked by those things, the weak and the sick, sick are people to get out of the way. Remember what we learned? The logic of competition always moves towards elimination. The logic of competition always moves towards elimination. And therefore, in a society marked by envy, you are sick, good. One less person to worry about, a little bit more for me. That is the wisdom that comes from below. That is earthly, unspiritual and demonic. Isn't it interesting that what James does, the first thing he does in this instruction is he empowers the weak. (laughs) To the one who is so weak that he he or she cannot even go to the elders, he says, you tell them to come to you. I've never seen that before. I've never seen it in that context before. Here was James. And in a Christian community, the weak are not marginalized. The weak are empowered to call upon the strong. And so, every time you do that, or if you're able to come to church and call ahead and say, look, uh, so-and-so, can you please arrange for three elders to come and pray with me? Or, as you do when you come at the communion service, and today, right in the middle of the service, you will have an opportunity to do that. Each time you do that, you are allowing us as a community to love you. You are allowing us as a community to say, no, no, we will not marginalize you. And if we feel like that, your action will reveal our sin. We will take that to God and we will pray for you. Fervently anointing you and believing God for Him. And I was just struck by the visual, by the metaphor, you know, of, of elders laying hands on someone and praying. Strength, life, faith, hope flowing from the strong into the weak. 
are a stark contrast to bitter envy and selfish ambition marginalizing the weak in our midst. And listen, even though physical healing may not take place, it is impossible for that to happen without emotional healing taking place. Because it is a direct affirmation to that person. Some of you who might have been on a Saturday night service here two weeks ago, I just felt really constrained because of a couple of interactions before that I needed to pray for Pastor Alan right in the service. And he was sitting in the second row over there. And so at the time of the pastoral prayer, I walked over to him. And, and there was a lady who had a, earlier on had told me, just in the same service before, that she had just been diagnosed with skin cancer. And so she came and joined us as well. By the way, last night she shared at the service that uh, she got an appointment at Sunnybrook within three days and was pronounced completely clean with no problems at all in it. Uh, and I prayed for Alan. And then later on, as Alan was talking to me, not only was he affirming some response in physically, he said, what you didn't know was I needed emotional healing that day. Because I was losing emotional strength, he said. And that's what came back to me. That, that, that's why this is loving. So God is doing things sometimes that we don't even know is happening. And all of this, all of this in the context of a community that is confessing its sins to one another and praying for one another. And it struck me, you know, even that, even that deals with this issue of not marginalizing the weak. Because in this highly individualized society that we live in, we have somehow bought into this idea that we have to conquer our sins by ourselves while maintaining this public facade of perfection. What a burden to carry. And then it is worsened because of our tendency when people do open up to be judgmental. And usually sexual sin is judged much more harshly than anything else. And it struck me that call, the call that James gives to us to confess our sins to one another and have us pray for one another is exactly the same. Just as a physically weak person calls for the elders and says, I can't even get out of bed, please pray for me. It's exactly the same thing for someone who's struggling. I talked about envy as an example. Maybe it's anger. As a Saturday night service, because we had more time there, somebody actually shared about that, about anger towards a particular individual. When you do that, you are saying to this community, I need you to pour your strength into me. I need you to pray for me. As a result of which, I will be able to conquer this. And every time you do that, every time you take that risk, in an appropriate setting with the appropriate degree of openness that is needed, you are allowing a community to not marginalize you. Because just as sick people can be marginalized, so sinful people can be marginalized because they upset this whole system because it either forces me to confess my sin or probably mostly because of that. In fact, some one, one person was talking to me after the service. She said, why don't we even ask people to pray? She said, it's probably because of this facade that we want to maintain that we don't need anything. You know. So all of this is part of the same loving community that James wants us to become. Where the sinful and the weak are not marginalized, but are prayed for with a fervency and enthusiasm and hope. And both physical and spiritual healing begin to take place. And one provides the atmosphere for the other. That's the wisdom that comes from above. That is pure and peace-loving. Now I also realized fairly early in this process that... Uh, I couldn't preach this sermon with any kind of conviction that I actually believe this stuff 
without providing opportunity for that to happen right in our congregation. So that's what we're going to do now for the rest of the service. We're going to have the worship team come on up right now. And they're going to lead us as a congregation in some songs of worship. And we'll have elders come on up. And elders, please come on up right now and take your positions. There will be at least three stations of elders right here. And we would encourage those of you who want to be anointed and prayed for to please make your way to the front. And they will pray for you. And if all three of the stations are full, just come to the front row and wait. And as soon as one of them becomes open, you can join them and pray as well. Okay? So just feel free to do that. And we just want to provide the kind of environment that will allow the Spirit of God to move in power. Read in the words of the prophet Zechariah through him to Israel, God says to them, he said that, you will be both a symbol and a source of blessing. I was struck by that. And that's my blessing for you, that this coming year, 2008, for, both, for all of you, will be an experience of both. That you will be both a symbol to everybody of the blessing of God, and you will also be a source of blessing to those your lives touch. Go in Jesus' name. Amen.